Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Stars Like Us. I am your host, Eliza Kelly, and I am so excited to introduce you guys to another Virgo. We love Virgos here. We love that mercurial energy. Her name is Annie Grace, and she is the author of This Naked Mind. It is so lovely to meet you. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. It's such a pleasure. So as I always do with these episodes, when we introduce a new guest on the show, um, I love to learn and and sort of understand your own personal mythology. Something that I think is really interesting that I had been sort of ruminating on a few days ago, but I don't think I had shared on this podcast is when, when we look at a birth chart in astrology, we're really looking at somebody's personal mythology. And that means that their story is embedded into it. So unlike some of the other mystical practices that are very much of like, I see a lion like what does a lion represent for you we actually kind of approach it with the inverted in through an inverted way where we take what has actually happened to somebody in their story and then we say ah okay this is how your real life is captured in the symbolism of your birth chart so it really all goes back to the narrative and the story and the mythology so annie what is your mythology how did you uh come to be who you are today Oh, that's so, I love that. It's fascinating. So I had a really unique upbringing. I was actually uh, born and raised in a tiny one-room cabin on the backside of a mountain at 10,500 feet without running water or electricity. And we Whoa. actually- Whoa. <laughs> Wait, so maybe we should go back a little bit more. How did, how did that come to be? How did, how, who, what were, what's the story of your parents and how they ended up in a cabin? So my dad um, was born and raised in the Bronx, uh, Jewish, you know, upbringing. And my mom was um, Cape Cod area outside of Massachusetts. And she, um, they both just kind of were drawn to Colorado. And they both kind of, I think my mom like cross country road tripped across the country. And then my dad ended up at DU getting a film degree and he was doing internships in Manhattan during the summers. And Right after he graduated, a friend of theirs said, hey, well, we have this cabin out in the mountains, so will you kind of house sit it for us for a few weeks? And they left, and I think they went to like tour Europe or something. And my dad had, you know, they were both very into like the hippie movement it's in the 60s. And my dad went to the cabin and didn't leave, and they didn't come <laughs> back. And so he's been there. I think it's close to 50 years now that he's been living in that cabin. It might even be over is he, 50 years. Do people still think he's house-sitting? <laughs> he's fully <laughs> – I don't even know that anybody would know that story. I mean, he's like a fixture. There's, you know, half a dozen cabins in this area, and they're all a few miles apart. And um, you can't even get there by car. You have to snowmobile in the winter because it's just that remote. So it's dirt roads, uh, all four-wheel drive, and then they just close the roads. So when I was a baby, actually, they didn't have anything. My dad didn't want to own anything that had a motor. Uh, but then I was born and he realized he needed to buy a chainsaw because otherwise, like the hand sawing and a firewood to keep a baby warm was just too much effort. And then the second thing they bought was a snowmobile because of the cross-country skiing with a baby on your back was just too much. So they... Wow. So your parents were not it wasn't like this was the only life that they knew it was that they had they basically had renounced what their own upbringings were in order to create this life yeah very intentionally and i think both of them like my mom was kind of raised in in sort of a 
you know, traditional evangelical kind of Christian and my dad was raised Jewish and, and they both very traditionally kind of set that tradition aside and went to more or less just live, you know, very alternative lifestyle in the middle of the mountains. And then they had kids. And, and did they know how to do that? Did they know how to live like that? Did it, was it intuitive for them? I think it evolved. I think that, um, you know, my mom has always had a super green thumb. She's still a landscaper to this day. So she does, you know, flower gardens and whatnot. And um, they didn't eat meat, so they weren't hunting or anything, but they were growing food. And of course, they were still able to go to the grocery store. They just wouldn't go. They would try to like have spans of time where they wouldn't actually go into the town. It was you know, a small town, Aspen, Colorado. Um, which was a small town back then, still is a small town, just a very swanky small town, but that's where they would go to the grocery store and whatnot. And so they'd leave, but, um, but yeah, they're getting chopping wood, getting water. They learned all that and they're just very strong fit. You know, they're young. They, you know, they still seem very young, even though they're not anymore, but. Okay. That, so Regardless of, so they had their reasons for wanting to sort of like go off the grid and live this alternative lifestyle with uh, none of the comforts of the modern world. And, but you didn't have a choice on that. You, you just came into this world and you're like, okay, cool. I guess I'm living off the grid. <laughs> There's no option here. So you, that was how, so that was where you were raised and that was how you grew up. Yeah. And it's funny because I have, I have a great friend and he and I had an opportunity to spend a few days together recently. And he's um just a really brilliant man. And he was, he was talking to me about this and he's like, but Annie, your childhood was so hard. And I'm like, no, Myron, it wasn't hard. Like, I don't remember. I mean, it's all I knew, of course, it wasn't hard. It was just normal. He's like, no, but it was comparatively hard. And I was like, no, I don't remember it being hard. I don't feel like it's hard. And he's like, that's why nothing is hard because you don't consider that hard. So then you come in and I was like, oh, I see. Because for me, people would be like, wow, that's so amazing. That's so incredible. I can't believe it. How did you feel? And I was like, well, I just felt normal. Like I didn't, I didn't have any feelings about it really. Um, and so, yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, my parents were very, very kind of, trying to be very organic, very healthy, you know, interesting, which ties into my personal story is they didn't drink alcohol. There wasn't alcohol in our house. They were, um, there also wasn't sugar in our house. We had carob, not chocolate. We'd have honey and maple syrup. And so it was just kind of this very pure upbringing, lots of time outside, most of our time outside. Um, obviously, you know, we didn't have, uh, a television for a long time. Eventually when I was like 11 or 12, my dad got a solar panel where we could plug a TV in. And so we'd have like a few hours of TV a week when the solar panel charged, but it was um, really interesting. I didn't really know how different it was, of course, until I started going to school. And then people were like, wow, that's so different. My parents did a brilliant thing. They invited all of my classmates because of course my graduating class was like 50 people. So it was a very small school. Uh, and they invited all our classmates up to go sledding and snowmobiling when I was really young. So although I was different, people thought it was very cool different instead of very weird different. And so that was that was really helpful. It, you were even different within this tiny town. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Nobody else was living in a log cabin in the mountains. <laughs> Got it. So it, that wasn't like what your peers were doing. Your peers also were like, wow, this is 
You yeah, and TV. I mean, compound <laughs> that with the fact that it was Aspen, Colorado. So, you know, a lot of my peers were the, the kids of, you know, quite famous movie stars and it was just so much money. And so not only were they not living in cabins, they were living in, you know, their Mansions. second and third massive yeah. house. <laughs> That's so fascinating. What an, what an interesting upbringing. Cool. So yes, that obviously is going to have a, a radical, leave a radical impression on who you are and what your resources, your internal resources are. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because it's something that I feel like other people can point out to me in a, in a way that I really have no concept or scaffolding around. Because of course, when you're, when you're in the fishbowl, you can't see the water. I don't, I don't see it from, from a perspective of what's normal and not normal. I mean, I, I fully logically understand that that was not a normal upbringing now, but um, <laughs> it, it isn't, you know, it doesn't feel, I can't, I can't relate. I mean, the only, I would say, lasting change that has happened, and this is really resolved now because it's been, I mean, I'm 41 and I left the cabin to go to college at, um, you know, 18, 19. So, you know, it's been 20 some years, but I do remember early days in college, just not having any clue what people were talking about when it came to television shows or movie stars or popular media. I was just totally out of it. I was it was, became a, a big joke and it was really funny, but it was always. But uh, weren't, weren't your peers in high school also, you know, it was like the same, the same kids, just in a different context. Were they, when you were in high school, were you not as exposed to kids, your peers talking about like TV or whatever pop cultural things were going on? Yeah, a little bit. But I also think the high school was different itself. I mean, like the traditional thing that the popular girls wore would be like, hiking boots and flannel shirts and no makeup you actually got made fun of if you were wearing makeup I mean oh, it was, okay it, it was such a um it was a very outdoorsy culture I mean everybody was skiing all the time we had part of our curriculum was these massive outdoor camping trips that we had to do where you know went desert hiking without water just a water pump for like a week stuff like that. It was, Holy shit. So it was very, the whole community, I would say, although it was Aspen and of course Aspen has that whole swanky side, the locals, you know, it was, you know, it's where like the Aspen Institute is and it's very outward bound, very focused on that stuff. So I don't think that anybody was watching a ton of TV. And then I think I just took it to a, another level. Right. Sure. Right. So, um, so yeah, so you went to, so you left at eighteen nineteen to go to college. Yeah. And, you know, my, my journey from there and really specifically in regards to what I do now in the book I wrote was that I didn't, I didn't drink a lot. I wasn't really, it was kind of like a take it or leave it thing, you know, remember, you know, a few parties ever. And then uh, graduated college, met my husband in college. We went to CSU and that was great. And then we both went to get our MBAs at CU Denver. And we were, I was working as well. He was just doing a full-time program. And when he graduated with his program, he got a job offer at an investment bank in New York City. So my dad thought that was really funny that we were kind of going full circle from like the Bronx to the mountain back to New York. So we moved a week after getting married, we moved to um, Brooklyn and we were both working in Manhattan. And I remember this is just kind of a funny thing because by then my friends had totally introduced me to like Sex in the City. And so I'd been watching Sex in the City. I thought that was a great TV show. I was getting excited. <laughs> yeah, about they, everyone is right. It is a great TV show. <laughs> my favorite. And so I go and um, my colleagues, my new colleagues 
said, Hey, you know, we'll take you out new girl. We'll take you out for a drink. So I was like, all right, great. So we went to this fancy, you know, midtown hotel bar. And I remember it was funny. Cause like the, it was one of those places where you close the, the doors are glass, but then if you close them, they like fog up or something. So it was like one way glass and on the bathroom. And so I was like, this is the weirdest place. This sounds very like early aughts. <laughs> this does not sound like something that would exist anymore. <laughs> yeah, it was so it was like every they were all trying to outdo themselves with the weird bathrooms. Yeah, this sounds strange. like pre-recession move. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely it was like 2005 for yeah. sure pre-recession. Especially cuz everybody had these big expense accounts too where we could, you know, everybody could buy lots of alcohol. So, we went out though and I didn't know what to order for a drink. So, since I'd been watching so much Sex in the City, I obviously ordered a Cosmopolitan and got some very funny looks. <laughs> like, okay, we don't really drink that, but sure. It's so funny. <laughs> you go. It's awesome. All right. All right. Yeah, that's I love it. I mean, that's like it really is like the living embodiment of like the I, I, I realize that some of my favorite genres of movies are like fish out of water movies, like anything that like somebody comes from like one place and then like it does like wacky things in another just kills me. It cracks me up. And to that I'm 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 really trying to contain myself right now because I just want to be like <laughs> lolzing all over. <laughs> that is so good. OK, so you ordered this Cosmopolitan. <laughs> so I ordered the Cosmopolitan. Um, they gave me the weird looks. I was like, huh, whatever. And then we got the bill and they paid because it was my first day out. But I remember looking at the bill and being like, $25? That's ridiculous. And I just had this feeling of like, that is ridiculous. Who does that? And so I, I didn't just go out to the bar for probably the first six, eight months I lived there. And then I ended up getting promoted. I ended up getting a different job. And, um, and one of my bosses, it was a, a company that was headquartered out of London. And so we'd have these higher ups coming in from the UK. And one of my bosses was like, hey, Annie, why aren't you showing up at the happy hour? And I was basically like, well, I don't really drink. And he's like, oh, it's not about drinking. It's about the fact that that's, you know, where your ideas are going to get heard by these executives. That's where your career is going to be built. Like, it's kind of like the golf course. Like, And what, you need what to was up. your, what industry were you in at this time? So I, this company, so I was, I started, um, I was always in financial services marketing. So at first I was working for a massive bank. And then by this time, when I'd gotten promoted, I was working in foreign currency. So I was working for the largest foreign currency provider and they were headquartered in the UK. And of course I was head of marketing for North America was my, my title. And I was the youngest VP in this company. So I was, you know, 26 and I was head of marketing for the whole country. Yeah, it was, it was great. And I, I loved it. I mean, I just had such a passion for like consumer behavior and marketing and what made people tick and all that stuff. I was, I was fascinated with it. And so, um, and I, I had a master's in it from university and I, I don't know, I loved it. So I was like, yeah, I'm really serious about this. So I had a, I literally had a method. I would be like, okay, glass of wine, glass of water, glass of wine, glass of water, make sure I never get too tipsy. Um, sometimes because I was drinking with all these, you know, 40 some year old men and they all could drink so much more than me. I would literally feel like, okay, I'm getting tipsy. I would go to the bathroom to throw up the glass of wine so that I could keep drinking wine and just make sure I could keep up. Uh, and it was so interesting in hindsight, but I was like, 
it was just my brain being like, okay, this is a logical problem. I'm going to solve it, which is I don't want to be the girl dancing on the table or doing anything stupid because I'm doing this for my career, not against my career. So how can I fit alcohol in here? And then, you know, it was interesting. I remember just little moments where I would, I would come home, I'd get off the train, I'd go to my apartment and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go for a run. And I remember this one day I went into my apartment and I looked at the counter and there was a bottle of wine. And I was like, huh, I could drink that or I could go for a run. They both probably do the same thing. And I just decided to open the bottle of wine. And, you know, little things like that were all the other things I was kind of doing for my mental health or, or for my health in general or just to be happy. I just sort of slowly started replacing them with alcohol, just not even realizing it. I, I don't remember any line that I, I really ever crossed um, specifically. But then, you know, really fast forward, I guess, a decade, I would move back to Colorado, but I was still working for the same company. I'd gotten promoted to global head of marketing. So I was spending half my time in London, in the UK, and traveling all around the world, and then half my time in my home office. I had two little kids. And um, I was drinking like almost two bottles of wine every single night and I wasn't even feeling it. I mean, I still wasn't getting, I wasn't, I wasn't the person who people are like having an intervention with, or you have a problem. Like I was super together, but inside I was like, this doesn't feel right anymore. This is, I, I can't even believe somebody can drink this much alcohol. This cannot be healthy for me. You know, I did what most people would do. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to drink less. And so I started making myself these little rules like, okay, I'm not going to drink till Thursday or I'm only going to drink two glasses at a time. And I could keep the rules, but if I kept them, I was mentally just like, oh, today sucks. You know, I have to be the designated driver. It's not so much fun. What's the point of even going out if I'm not going to have a drink? Meh. Or I just wouldn't keep them and be like, well, forget it. I'll do that tomorrow. And so slowly but surely, I realized that like my attempts to, to cut back were not doing me any favors. In fact, Interestingly, I can see now that my attempts to cut back actually had me drinking more. And I see now that that was like really the forbidden fruit syndrome. It's very typical of how our brains work. You tell our, your brain you can't have something and it wants it more. But I didn't see that at the time. I was just completely dumbfounded. Like, why, why am I so smart and in control in all these areas of my life? But this is a big, fat problem. And it wasn't a problem like I was in trouble at work or I was screwing anything up or, you know, doing bad things, but it was internally a big problem. I had this huge battle going on of both wanting to drink more and less all at once. And just, you know, I always talk about the fact that, you know, we're so, we're so in tune with conflict externally, right? Like, so if somebody's fighting in the subway, I remember subway fights and you're just like, Oh my gosh. And you feel it and your, your heart rate goes up, right? You're in, yeah, you're it's in terrifying when that happens. Yeah. And then if you're fighting like with your, your partner and you're in your own house, it's even more intense, but we don't take into account that, this fighting with ourselves as both wanting to do more and less of something and then beating ourselves up for it. It's really, really brutal on the human soul. Like it's, it's really brutal, but we don't look at it because it's so typical. We just have resigned ourselves to this kind of, you know, chest. Why didn't I work out? Why am I having a third glass of wine? Why did I eat that last night? What's my problem? Why can't I do this? Like, it's just so normal. We've gotten really used to this internal conflict and, um, in my experience, I just, that actually escalated my drinking because when you are a drinker and you're using alcohol to relieve stress, then you're stressed because you're fighting with yourself and you're drinking more. And so something happened to me when I was coming back from the UK one day, it was really cool. It was very much like one of these moments of kind of divine, like, I don't know what's going on, but something in the universe is lining up right now to tell me this one thing. And I remember I was sitting in a train tunnel 
I was super hungover. I had stayed up really late with colleagues at a work event in somebody's hotel room watching a football game like till three in the morning, ridiculously. And then I, you know, gotten myself into the restaurant. I tried to order a mimosa because that was totally cool to drink at six in the morning in my mind. But she said, well, I'm not going to open the bottle of champagne because unless you're going to drink the whole bottle, it's going to go flat before anybody else wants one. And I was like, oh no, I would never, no, 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 not going to drink the whole bottle. She said, but I can give you a screwdriver, which is vodka and orange juice. And like, I had these little like alarm bells, like, okay, vodka at six in the morning. That's not something I'd done before. That's not a line I'd crossed, but I was like, okay, fine. Just this once. And so I had a few of those. I got to the airport and I remember just sitting there thinking, you know, I'm going home to my, my family, my two young boys and my husband, and I'm bringing them the worst of myself and they really deserve the best of me. And, um, I'd been asking myself for probably a year, year and a half, maybe even two years now, like, what's wrong with you? Like, do you have a problem? Are you an alcoholic? What is going on? And I take these tests and they tell me, no, I'm not an alcoholic. I, I even had a friend in AA and I talked to her about it. And she's like, yeah, but you're not an alcoholic. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm not, not like, I can't do that route or whatever. And so, but I had all this drama of this, my pervasive question was what's wrong with me. And in this moment of really like, inspiration, I just was struck with another question, which was why? Why is this different than it used to be? Why was it when I first started drinking, I could like look at the bill and be like, huh, it's expensive. I don't want to do that anymore. Yet now, if I don't have a drink, I feel totally deprived and like I'm missing out. It's not that I could, I could go without alcohol physically, but emotionally it was, you know, upsetting. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to just keep drinking. And I, I decided I'm going to stop trying to stop. I'm going to stop with any limits, with any restrictions. I'm going to get off this crazy train of, you know, making promises and breaking promises. And I'm just going to figure out why I'm going to answer that one question. I'm going to write a list of all the reasons I drink. And I'm going to try to understand what it does in my brain, what it does in my body. Why is it that all of a sudden I feel stuck? And that took me like 11 months. And I did. I totally got off that like inner fighting thing. I just stopped. I put down the weapons, wasn't fighting with myself. I was just committed to the curiosity. And after like really learning, I mean, so many fascinating things. I remember coming out of my office and telling my husband like, all right, if you want to drink with me again, tonight's the night, because after this, I think I'm done drinking. And he was like, what? And so we split a bottle of wine and, you know, that was really it. I, I drank one other time after that, because I was really curious about after I was separated from alcohol for a few months, what it really did. So I actually got out my iPhone, <laughs> put it on a, a, like a tripod and filmed myself getting drunk. So I could actually experience like what alcohol felt like in my body when I wasn't drinking it regularly. And after that, I was like, geez, I, I just have no desire to drink it. And so I don't, I don't really say like I'm sober, I'm in recovery. I just basically say, you know, I drink what I want whenever I want, but I just haven't wanted to drink in almost five years, over five years now, actually. And it's awesome. So what did you just, I mean, this, you're like a, a scientist. Um, this is like, you're, the way that you're approaching this is through trying to understand from, you know, top to bottom and bottom to top, what you're, why you're compelled to drink. So what did you find in those 11 months? So you just were like, fuck it, I'm drinking. Yeah, for sure. And how did you, and were you like, documenting your experiences? Did you have a journal? Did you have different checkpoints and tests set up? Yeah, How did totally. you approach I, this? And that's what I did is I just replaced all of this shame and blame with curiosity. I was like, okay, curiosity is going to be my driving emotion, <laughs> my driving thing. And so I would do all sorts of things. Like 
I would notice, okay, so I had a routine where I'd walk out of my office and I'd walk to the cabinet and I had my box of wine because I was no longer drinking bottles because, you know, it made me feel all bad about myself if I drank more than one bottle. So I had my box so I could drink two bottles and not worry about it. So I have my box of wine and I remember going, okay, right, I'm done working. How do I feel? I'm going to walk out there. How do I feel? I'm pouring my wine. How do I feel? And I realized that I felt better before I even took the sip. I was like, wow, it's literally like my body is decompressing. I feel this kind of giddy, like work's done, kind of like before I took the sip of wine. And then I started noticing that with other people. I would notice people, um, I remember being out to dinner in, in Paris one night and I was eating for the first time ever tartare. I just remember this. So it's like, I just have to try it. It was very strange. But anyway, this whole group of people came in and they were all kind of bummed and they're like, oh, you know, after work and they sit down and they start talking about ordering drinks and their, their whole energy changed. And then they ordered the drinks and their whole energy changed. And they were happy and giddy and bubbly before the drinks even hit the table. I was like, huh, that's weird. And so then that sent me down this whole rabbit hole of like researching the placebo effect and learning things like you can literally um, be touched with poison ivy, but if somebody who has credibility tells you it's not poison ivy, your skin won't break out most of the time. Like stuff like that. Like, how is this even possible? This is crazy. And then I, one of the big reasons I was drinking at that stage was for stress. You know, it was one of those like work hard, play hard. You know, I'm going to be the one up all night doing whatever. And then I'm going to be in the office early in the morning. And, and so I started researching that and come to find out that, you know, alcohol is fascinating. It is it is both a stimulant and a depressant. So it, and, and it's one of the few substances like that. So basically it has this arc of how it's categorized. So when your blood alcohol content is rising, when you first have a drink, your blood alcohol content rises, your BAC. And as it's rising, you feel kind of those nice euphoric, kind of giddy, a little bit dizzy, loopy out of it, but nice feelings, right? And that lasts for about 20 to 30 minutes, according to the science. And then I did time it myself. And that was true for me as well. And, um, and that's when it's a stimulant. And then your body says, whoa, 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 this is a toxin. We have to get this out of the body. The body actually stops doing all sorts of other stuff, like regulating your blood sugar or digesting your food in order to prioritize eliminating the alcohol because it is toxic to the body. And so as it starts leaving the body, it becomes a depressant. And so on that downward arc, you feel anxious and irritable and tired and just uneasy and, you know, not quite comfortable in your own skin and all of these really not nice feelings as alcohol becomes a depressant. Now, the kicker is that that 20 to 30 minutes for one drink is exchanged for two to three hours as your body eliminates that one drink. It takes your body much longer. But we never see this in our drinking cycle because what do you do 20 minutes after your first drink? You have another drink. So when you're drinking let's say you're having multiple drinks as one does are these are is each drink being processed within this own within that cycle is there or are there is it compounding um with each drink you have does the cycle elongate like does that 20 to 30 minutes become you know an hour to an hour and a half if you have the proportionate amount of drinks or is it like always the 20 to 30 minutes and then it resets or how does it work? Yeah, no, that's such a great question. And it's really interesting because one of the things that, you know, now I help people um, because accumulation of my story is basically that I did have tons of journals and I put them out on the internet and they went like, I just 
put a PDF out there and it got 20,000 downloads in two weeks. And I started getting letters from all over the world. And so I went on to take all my journals and put it into the book. Um, and, and that's just been going crazy. So now I really help people who, you know, were where I was. And, um, and so I've had people time this, right? And so I'll tell you, I'll tell you their experiences and I'll tell you the, the science as well. So what happens is that actually that euphoric period shortens um, and it shortens because your body is, is now balancing both the depressant and the stimulant. So the stimulant isn't as strong the second time around. So with that second time around, you'll still have a little bit of a euphoric period, but it will be shorter than the first 20 to 30 minutes. And, um, and then of course the, the depressant period, it does, it elongates because now you are having to process twice as much. So, so actually the, the compounding gets worse, uh, but you can keep, keep that kind of euphoric bubble building. As we know, you can have two or three hours where you're kind of like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm still drinking. I'm still drinking. I'm trying to chase that high. Um, I'm trying to chase that feeling. But what people have noticed when they start to really get um, curious about it and, and they write down their times and they actually do this. I had one woman recently and she handed me a piece of paper and she's like, okay, this is how it was for me. It was 21 minutes for the first drink. It was 16 minutes for the second drink. It was 13 minutes for the third drink. And then she didn't even feel it with the fourth drink. And uh, the science confirms that where once your blood alcohol reaches a certain level, the, the, the euphoric feelings aren't there. It's, that's where you get the angry, sad, weepy, crying, you know, the, the drunk personality that just isn't, isn't nice. Um, being drunk actually doesn't feel very good to humans, but we don't often remember that it doesn't feel very good. And there's so much science behind why, why do we do this then in the first place? Well, one of the main reasons is because it overstimulates um, the pleasure center in our brain. And so we think, oh, well, that sounds great, right? Like, I love that idea. Of course, that's why we drink. We want to overstimulate the pleasure center. Well, the problem is that your brain is always trying to maintain homeostasis. So it actually turns down the level of stimulation with counter chemicals. And while it can't turn it down all the way, that is what get us, gets us hooked is that overstimulation. However, it, those counter chemicals, because they're not toxic to the body, they're produced by the body. Uh, one is called dynorphin. It doesn't actually leave the body at the same pace. So you have dynorphin left in your system. So you wake up the next morning, you have this combined feeling of, or, or for me, I was waking up and most people report this in the middle of the night, just with awful anxiety and kind of, what did I drink? But lots of like nervous energy, like it wasn't good energy, but I couldn't fall back to sleep. I was just anxious and up and beating myself up. And it was this very intense moment in the middle of the night, sometimes lasted like an hour. And what's happening is not only is your body like processing the alcohol still, so you all still have all the depressant effects of the drink, but now you have this dynorphin that is present. So that means that just normal things that would elicit pleasure, like, you know, I don't know, reading a book or meeting a friend or going to a concert, those are all normally pleasurable activities. When you're drinking a lot because you have the dynorphin, you aren't going to feel pleasure to the way you were before you were drinking. So actually you need the drinks to bust through that level of dynorphin that's always in your system. I know this is getting super sciencey, so you feel free to stop me if you're like annoyed. No, we um, love it. We love it. But that is why you get so hooked, you know, so it overstimulates your pleasure centers and it releases dopamine. And dopamine is the molecule that tells us that thing you just did, do that thing again, right? So dopamine gets released with sex, with food, with uh, target practice. That's why first person shooter video games are so addictive because you, you hit the target just like we would need to do to survive with bow and arrow and a buffalo, say, and your brain gets a shot of dopamine. 
it gets a shot of dopamine scrolling your phone. It gets a shot of dopamine when your text, you know, pops, uh, stuff like that. But with alcohol and any addictive drug, that shot of dopamine is very high. It's, it's artificially high levels of dopamine. And so your brain learns, it does your brain, by the way. And this is one of the things that I just have a little bit of a rant on is that we have this perception that when you get addicted to something, something's wrong with you, the addict, right? You are the problem. You did something wrong. You made bad choices. You made bad decisions. The truth is the scientific truth is that your brain is actually doing exactly what it was designed to do. It is doing exactly what it needs to do for your survival. It is saying, ooh, dopamine, that thing, imprint that, encode that, do that thing again. And it is learned that we need to continue to do that thing in order for our survival. And that thing just happens to be a drink. And then, of course, alcohol creates tolerance because as your body tolerance is really like an immunity, your body's trying to build up a tolerance to it so that it isn't as impactful to the body. It's trying to learn how to purge it faster so you get less of the feeling. It's trying to learn how to deal with it so it releases these counter chemicals. You build up this tolerance. And what do we do with tolerance? We drink more. We overstimulate the dopamine to a, a greater degree. And you can see how the cycle will continue. So we get tricked into, not tricked as much, but the brain does have really a learning error into doing something that actually isn't bringing us all that much pleasure. But because we've coupled it as a society with everything pleasurable, we have totally linked every single celebratory activity with alcohol, right? I mean, we've done the same thing with sugar and reward and celebration. What do you get when you're in second grade and you do a good job? You get a lollipop. What do you get on your birthday when you're turning three? You get a cake, right? And so we link these very addictive substances with really traditionally pleasurable experiences. And then we just get confused too. So not only neurochemically are we confused, but like our own experience is like, well, I mean, my experience is like, it's not going to be fun if I can't have a drink, right? And now I can look back and I can sort of be like, oh, but being drunk at that, that concert was a lot like being drunk on my couch in front of Netflix. It was a lot like being drunk at my friend's wedding. Like actually being drunk feels the same. So I was actually having a very homogenous experience when I was drinking so much. This is so interesting. I, um, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating because I do think that, you know, it's breaking through to curiosity with when it comes to addiction is a feat in and of itself because obviously you know in a lot of recovery programs the first step is sort of admitting so even admitting to be curious about something is tough you have to at least even acknowledge the fact that something is happening internally to be curious about with all of the work that i do I mean, astrology requires profound curiosity and questioning everything. And I tell this to my clients every time we, I, we're about to do a one-on-one -on -one reading is that the session really is you dump all of your truths, all of the purses, flip them out, dump them out on the table. I'll come through with my astrological expertise and we're basically going to play a game of match where like you tell me one truth and then we're going to see it reflected somewhere in your chart. And we're basically just, you know, making these big cycles. But in order to even have the experience of like a really comprehensive deep dive in astrology, you have to be willing to just dump out your purses, you know, and say what's really going on without judgment. I've been working on this. I've been sort of I wrote about this in my book that I just I wrote the manuscript for, um, but this concept of compassionate curiosity and 
being really kind to yourself through the process of being of maintaining this curiosity and you know not to judge in a in a qualified like this is good or bad way but to just simply be aware and to sort of be your own be the doctor and the patient of yourself simultaneously to have an active and participatory role. But I think that that's really hard because it acknowledges, you know, the first step is like just being comfortable looking at your truth. And without looking at the truth, there's not really any way to begin a process of understanding what's happening to you. Have you seen that to... The, to be the case in your work as well. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like the question I that really changed everything for me is like, why why is this different? And inherent in that question is that something was different, that I was using alcohol in a way that I wasn't before, which was, of course, the truth that you want to run from for as long as you can, right? Like I wanted to run from the fact that I didn't feel in control around alcohol. Um, I wanted to run from the fact that I was using it to self-medicate. I wanted to run from the fact that I needed it in general or felt like I needed it. And all of those things, by the way, I wanted to run from them because the societal norms and truths around that is that if that's true, if you are someone who is not drinking responsibly, who is using it to self-medicate, who needs a drink to just, you know, get through the day, something is wrong with you. You are the thing that has gone wrong, right? And so because of that, um, and and so in that moment, I had to, A, admit that like, yeah, these things have gone wrong, but B, get curious enough to say, well, did it go wrong because of me being wrong or did it go wrong because actually the substance is is what's happening? And I didn't even have that question articulated or anything, but but that was kind of part of it. But I had to be comfortable with if it went wrong because of something I did, I was going to have to, I had to be curious about that too. You can't be just curious for the answers you want. And I think that's really interesting. So, I mean, I almost made myself an agreement in that moment that like, if my curiosity shows me that life really does suck without drinking, I'm going to just continue to drink, even if it kills me early. Like that's, that's the level of kind of surrender to the process of experimentation that I had. And, um, and what I take people through now, I call it the alcohol experiment for exactly that reason. Like, let's just get curious, uh, because, and interestingly, um, and I love this fact, but recently BJ Fogg, he's a PhD researcher at Stanford, and he's just published this book called Tiny Habits. And in his book, he talks about this decade-long research that he's done on like what makes a habit stick. And one of the main things that he talks through, which just is so logical and it makes so much sense, he said it's it's not the 21 days or the 66 days, or you know, those things are correlated with how much a habit will stick. But what is causal to what makes a habit stick is actually emotion, and it is positive emotion. And so if you feel good or positive around the habit itself, you are much more likely to do that. So if there's a way, and I think positive emotion, a lot of positive emotion gets a bad rap because positive thinking, yada, yada, yada. But actually a lot of positive emotion can just be removing the negative emotion. And so for me, if I look back at that moment, I was simultaneously removing negative emotion by deciding I was no longer going to beat myself up for my drinking and removed a ton of negative emotion. But then I was getting curious. And if you think about curiosity, it is actually a truly positive emotion because there's possibility in curiosity. There's hope in curiosity. There's momentum in curiosity. There's energy in curiosity. And so we don't think of it like joy or fun, but it is a really positive emotion. And and so I think that had a lot to do with why I was able to sustain that level of research because the new habit I was trying on at that point was not not drinking. 
it was researching, right? But I was really focused because everything I uncovered, A, let me off the hook, made me feel normal, made me feel like, wow, like this is so fascinating and just continued to fuel the curiosity without me blaming myself. But yeah, that key transition, if, if anybody is, is stuck or struggling, if, if there is a way to make that transition from the self-blame and judgment, just to being curious about why you're here in the first place, I mean, that's a huge, huge milestone. So when does the sort of the, the study, so to speak, end? Because I could imagine myself who loves systems and also loves to like fuck with systems. I think that part of my intelligence is being able to understand systems really well, very quickly, and then learning how to get away with things. Um, this was also, you know, this is like a byproduct of like my childhood and my trauma and my parents' divorce and blah, 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 blah. But from a very young age, I was like, okay, the assignment calls for X, Y, and Z and you get extra credit if you hand it in at this time, which means that if I hand it in at this time, even if I do a really shitty job on it, I could get the maximum score. So I don't like basically finding shortcuts constantly, um, which is, you know, I, I think is a, definitely a skill of mine, but makes these types of things when it's like you have to then be honest with your work in a way harder for me. Um, where like I could do this experiment, but who's to say when it stops, you know, like I could do this experiment my whole life if I wanted to. So is there a time? And for you, it was like, you know, you had told your husband, like, this is going to be our last night of drinking because I think I'm done. Like, how do you get to a point of realizing that you're done or that you can come up with some sort of a conclusion? Yeah, I think for me and for a lot of people that I'm now seeing go through the same process it is when the emotion changes and when the emotion changes, the desire changes. So, um, and I, I feel like this has been true with almost everything I've tried to do in my life. Like if I've tried to force exercise and I just do it and I can do it. I mean, I can make myself go to the gym for a certain amount of time, a certain amount of days. But then when I decided I was going to find something I really enjoyed doing and I got into martial arts and I love it, it, it's not even an effort to continue to do exercise. It just happens. It's just part of who I am and what I do. And I think that that the level of research that I did actually changed my desire for a drink. It was very hard when somebody would be like, oh, you're having a hard day. Let me get you a bottle of wine for me. And my drinking did, it did slowly decline too, totally unintentionally. I mean, like without any effort, um, I wasn't even really noticing how much it was declining because I wasn't tracking it because I wasn't going to beat myself up about it. Um, but when somebody would be like, hey, you know, you're having a hard day, let me get you a bottle of wine. And I knew that actually that's going to give me 20 minutes of relief and then it's going to make me more miserable. Um, and actually, I'm going to be more miserable tomorrow and then I'm going to have a hangover. Like, I just didn't desire it anymore. And we're not tempted by things we don't desire. We're not triggered by things we don't desire. You know, it's really easy not to drink a cup of motor oil because we don't think it tastes good and we don't see the point. And so, when my desire changed that and only then was I really like, yeah, I think I'm done with this. And it wasn't even, it, there was no effort in it. There wasn't a, it, it was more like it would have been effort to continue to drink at that point. Like that's really how much understanding I had done. And aside from, you know, the fact that alcohol does numb you because it does, it, it they used to use it as an anesthetic in surgeries. And so it literally will make you feel numb. Um, 
now they found things that are much less dangerous than than using that much alcohol to numb a human in surgery. But mm-hmm. it does numb you. It makes your brain sort of think slower. Um, and it does have that 20 minutes of kind of that euphoric tipsy, like every other thing that I thought it was doing for me, it didn't do. So it wasn't like I was, you know, whitewashing it and being like, no, it's it's the worst thing ever. It's absolutely no, I was like, no, it does do those things. Like it it will if I'm having a really bad day, I can drink enough to make myself unconscious. Like I can do that. Like I can drink enough to make myself pass out. Um, but that didn't end up being worth it. Like I didn't want to do that anymore. So for me, and what I really try to teach people, and people are so impatient, like they they really are so impatient to get to a point where their desire changes. And I think for two reasons. For one is we just don't believe it. When we want something, it's so hard to believe you don't want it. You know, that ex-boyfriend who you swear you were going to marry him and it was just going to be the thing. And now you don't even like who, who, what? But in that moment, when your mom said, there's other fish in the sea, like you can't even you can't even go there. So if someone says you might not actually want to drink, people just don't believe it. So they say, no, I'm going to have to effort here. I'm going to have to try. I know that alcohol is costing me, so I'm going to have to effort. Um, And then I think we're just impatient for change too, because we actually want to feel better, feel healthier, whatever vanity reasons we want to stop drinking, lose the weight, look, you know, clearer skin. So all of those things happen. And so people are really impatient. And I'm always like, no, 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 just, just stay the course, just keep going through the information because really the goal is that your desire shifts because then it doesn't take any effort. You, you're not tempted. You don't have cravings. You're not living by a set of rules um, and then getting mad at yourself when you break, break your rules. I smoked cigarettes for almost 10 years and it was such a, you know, I, I still drink alcohol. I drink alcohol very differently than I used to. Um, my relationship has shifted very dramatically with alcohol, but it does oscillate. Um, right now it's, it was better in 2019 than it is today. (laughs) Let's just say that. But with smoking, that was a scary thing to sort of watch my boundaries break year after year. I remember starting smoking in high school. Well, I really started at 13, but I I would say like I got invested at 16. I remember thinking I'm not going to smoke when I go to college. I'm going to a college in Minnesota. Nobody smokes there. This is a very New York high school thing to do. I got to college. It was true. Most people didn't smoke. I found the smokers. Um, Then I was like, I'm going to quit when I graduate. And then I didn't. And then I was going to quit when I turned 25. And then I didn't. And then it was like I was getting closer to 30. And it was like, oh, my God, am I ever going to quit? Like, is this actually – is this not happening anymore? Is this like, is this over (laughs) this idea that I'm not going to be a smoker? And it was only in meeting my current partner who could not stand alcohol. Speaking of sex in the city, it was very Aiden or I'm sorry, cigarettes, who it was like a very Aiden situation where he like was just absolutely anti-smoking that I allowed myself to start testing, you know, how long could I go without a cigarette? And it was a, you know, it started as just a test. Like we went on our first vacation together. I obviously wasn't going to smoke during that. So that was like the first, you know, 10 days that I didn't have a cigarette and who knows how long. Um, and then I told him when we got back, I was like, okay, I'll do this for another month, but I'm going to smoke in October. And he was like, not happy about it, but agreed. And then October came and I was like, okay, I went all this time. I'll do another month. And it literally just had to be incremental. 
And finally, the first time I did have a cigarette after that, it had been so long that I had one and it just sucked and I couldn't even finish it and it tasted horrible. And it was there was something really heartbreaking about it because so much of my identity had been embedded in smoking and like wanting to smoke and loving smoking and never wanting to give up cigarettes, but really wanting to give up cigarettes. And that exactly that like push and pull that you were describing. And then when I had this cigarette and it was so uninspiring and it tasted so bad and it just made me feel like I had already been participating in that space without smoking. And then I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'll have one. I've gone like five months and realized that I had participated already in the space. I had done all the things. I had hung out with smokers. I like could do it all without a cigarette. Bringing that cigarette did not enhance my experience at all. I was having just as much, I was having more fun before I had had the cigarette and then I felt shitty and I had to drink all this water and I was like, get this out of my mouth. So that was a really eye-opening experience for me because it was something that, it was a very hard addiction to break, but through being curious about it and through sort of setting, taking the pressure off holistically and working in much smaller bite-sized pieces, it was so much easier for me to... um, actually then compound that experience to no longer be a smoker anymore. It's heartbreaking, these cycles. So much, so emotional, so much comes up. You know, it, it really is about, it's, it's so trite sounding because there's so many practices of mindfulness and we start to associate that with like, whatever, boring. But it really is about staying in the moment and like being super conscious every moment of the, you know, present every moment um, where you are making a choice every moment rather than just feeling like you have to submit to a narrative. Yeah. And I think the key to that is, is allowing those choices to be, you know, not to be negative if, if you, because so much of like, okay, if positive emotion is one of the, the keys here, so much of that is just removing the negative, you know, cause what you were doing in your cigarette smoking experience, you were really like, I can, if I want to, I'm just going to try this. I can, if I want to, I'm just going to try this. But I think when people normally go about something like, I can never drink again, I have to stop this forever. And then you've put this line in the sand that chances of you keeping that commitment are very slim. And by the way, when you break it, you're going to beat yourself up. And I think alcohol is something that literally blows my mind. I mean, I don't understand. There's nothing else that I can think of where 100% is success and 99.9% is failure, you know, like in terms of oh, you're not sober if you have a drink, you know? And I'm like, what is that all about? Like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, because we don't measure other things like that, you know? We That's measure so true. things yeah. on, you know, what percentage have you reduced or, you know, like progress. We measure progress almost everywhere else. But here we're like ruthless. And I think it keeps so many people stuck in that negative emotion and therefore stuck drinking because we don't look at, at having a drink as, we look at it as like, oh, well, that's a relapse, you know, and, and now you're, I mean, it just, it's so tied up and just nasty stuff. And I think when you can come at it, like, you know what, I'm just going to try this. I'm going to see how it goes. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If it does work, it does work. But you have to, you know, kind of have the courage to be like, I'm going to find my own path in this, no matter what that means. Like, if that means that, like for me, that I keep drinking because I've convinced myself that yes, drinking is adding tons of stuff to my life that I would be missing out without then I'm going to keep drinking. Like, and I was, I was firm on that commitment, but I also was firm on if I find that like alcohol is not doing anything for me, then I'm going to be okay letting it go. And so 
I think that though, you know, because we just fall into these paradigms of society is like, well, you do anything. And then you're, I remember reading something, I forget who it was. It might've been Byron Katie. And she basically hadn't had a cigarette for like 10 years or something. And then she was in a taxi cab in in Paris and the driver passed her a cigarette and she was like, sure. And she had a cigarette and like in everybody's book, it's like, Oh my gosh. And it's like, so I had a cigarette, like it was no big deal. And then now I don't want it anymore. And I think that level of just, you know, really figuring out what you want and that instead of what you think you should want in every moment. Um, but being really aware at the same time, it's a tension, like most good things in life. It's a tension. Yeah. And also another Carrie Bradshaw experience because she also went to Paris and started Well, maybe that's who that was then. <laughs> <I've gotten> my- <laughs> so um, where can we find you now and what? how have you synthesized this into your work? So I wrote a book. It's called This Naked Mind. And then um, a few years after the book came out, I wrote another book called The Alcohol Experiment. And I actually created kind of an online experience, which is free. You could go to alcoholexperiment.com. And it's just basically for people who are like, you know what? I'm curious. I don't know what that means for me. I don't know if that means I want to stop or I just want to cut back or maybe nothing. I'm just curious. And every day you get a video and an email and it's just kind of a mindset shift. Some of the information that I shared today, just going more in detail with all of it. Not scary. Not I don't think fear things work, you know, because it doesn't keep us changing. I think it really is about towards pleasure rather than away from pain in the long term. But yeah, alcoholexperiment.com if anybody wants to try that uh, experiment. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. It's so lovely connecting with you. And uh, I'm going to be hitting you up for all of your poison ivy tips awesome. moving forward. Because <laughs> <That's so good. laughs> even though I spend my time in Minnesota, I am definitely not equipped for nature. <laughs> thank you right, so thank much. You.